Hello, this is longtime Milwaukee radio personality Steve Pallack. Stand by, your next episode is queued up. The on air light is lit. It's season five of the Bait and Switch podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. This is Chris Beyer, as always, with my co-host, Jim Martin, and we're in studio. In studio. This is our second post-COVID in-studio episode. Right, right. I don't think we're going to count very many more after this, but since it's the same night, you know, (laughs) this is number 12, back in the studio, number 71. But but we're probably still going to do Zoom. For I, people that so. are yeah, people that are so, not yeah. in the area, obviously. Right, right, yep. Mm-hmm. And honestly, based upon you know some of the leads that I've gotten, things like that, it would probably still be 50-50 at best, I'd think. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, they better fly their butts out here. We're getting big now. Yep. You know, yep. get fly up to Milwaukee. Come on. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah. But no, we'll make them. No, we'll not, make none them. of this we'll see. If you say we'll see, it won't happen. Now we got to put our feet down. All right. Both right. of them. Yeah. <laughs> just, just one foot. Down. All four of them. Both, yeah, right. <laughs> this episode, uh, yeah. like I just told our guest, who I will introduce in just a second, mm-hmm. uh, I said we're going to do two halves of this uh, of this uh, podcast, and one's going to be a little heavier, a little deeper. The other one's going to be a little bit more fun. Right. And he said, you know, sometimes they say, you know, do you want the good news first or the bad news first, yeah. right? Yeah. So I asked him, and I still won't say who he is, but I right. said, do you want the, the heavy one first or the light one first? Right away, he said. He said, give me the heavy one. Give me the heavy one. That's the kind of guy this guy is. Yes, he is. Yes. going yeah, straight in. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Rip it off. Right, right. Like exactly. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, so we'll get deep here right away in the beginning. On Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, Thomas McGinnis Jr., 42, along with his crew, took off aboard America's Air, American Airlines Flight 11, a Boeing 767 with 92 people on board, on a flight from Boston's Logan International Airport bound for Los Angeles at 7.50 a.m. in the morning. McGinnis was a former member of the military who shares that in common with my co-host, co-host Jim Martin, and our guest, Scott Zavecco. Yep. Welcome, Scott. Welcome, Thank Scott. You. Scott's been on the, the podcast a couple of times couple before. Times. Great and guest. And it yep. came up in the first episode. We talked a little bit about his military experience. Mm-hmm. But when Officer McGinnis left that morning on the flight, he had no idea that he'd become one of the first victims in America's 20-plus-year war on terror. Now, of course, terror aimed at the United States was not new. There, and a long time ago, there was terror acts in recent times. Perhaps two of the more prominent ones were the U.S. coal bombing off uh, the coast of Yemen, and that was in the year 2000. In 1983, there was the Marine uh, barracks uh, uh, bombing. Lebanon, was in it? Lebanon, mm-hmm. Beirut, Lebanon. So, uh, And also the, uh, I mean, it was... There were less deaths, but they tried to blow up the Trade Center. Right. And right? Uh, right. I forget which year that was. Yeah, so acts of terror against the United <laughs> States have been going on for a long time. But the you know the official you know war on terror really began with that event. After these attacks, uh, Americans were understandably anxious to catch those responsible. And the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration, vowed to hit back hard. And they did. And now that those attacks are now 20 years ago, at least uh, in the rearview mirror, and uh, more recent, the pullout of Afghanistan just a few months ago, I thought we'd talk to Scott here, who is a veteran of the war on terror. Yep. What he thinks uh, this meant to America, what he th- 
uh, thinks it means to America going forward and talking about his experiences with uh, with the war on terror that he was part of. Before I ask the overarching questions, Scott, about the war on terror, I want to ask you, when the planes hit the towers that day, you were already in the military, right? Yes. So what was going through your head as far as what might happen with your future that day? Yeah, at the time, I was, so I was working at the VA. Uh, that's where I'm employed currently. And when I saw the planes hit, I, I didn't really know about it right away. It, it took a while before I caught wind of it. And there was a lot of commotion. I was in a kind of working in a room by myself that particular day. And, you know, there was a lot of bustling outside the room. I didn't really have the radio on. And by the time I realized something was going on, I had walked up front. They already had a TV hooked up. I saw the planes had hit the Trade Center, and you know most of my coworkers were up there watching it. And I think the first thing that popped into my head at that moment was like, "I am going to be deployed somewhere." You know, I knew this was uh, a terrorist attack, and uh, reserve units like mine are going to be brought to active duty. So that's probably the first thing that went through my head was, "I'm going to be deployed someplace." Had you ever been deployed in a different action? Uh- you weren't part of the. Were you part of the first uh, uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield? Yes. Yeah, so uh, in the early '90s, I was part of Desert Storm. Uh, you know that was all the whole thing in Saudi Arabia, but I stayed stateside for that. So okay. my unit was brought to active duty, and we went to San Antonio, Texas. I was there for about three months. And Jim is nodding. I, I was also uh, in the military at that time. So technically. I was also part of that war. Like I have the badge, or not the badge, the the medal, the thing that I can wear. Like if I were going to wear my blues uniform, I'd have that campaign badge. The Desert Storm. Desert Storm. Well, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But yeah, Desert Storm. I think is what you get. But 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 I never was even close to going over. So I don't even like. I don't say. Oh, I was a I was a Gulf War veteran. I mean, technically, yes, it's on my my discharge paperwork. But I don't tell people that because I feel like the people who are actually there. That's, you know, I mean, it sort of does them a disservice to say that, you know. Right. So. Yeah, I never went to the Middle East in that, for that mm-hmm. uh, deployment. Yeah. Right. And that was, and again, yeah, I keep going back to this storm shield thing. I think yeah. the first one was storm, right? Mm-hmm. Or was it shield? No, it was desert sh- storm. Sh- it started as desert shield. Shield. Okay. Right. And it became yeah. desert storm when right. Right. troops mm-hmm. moved. And in. that was 1991, right? Was that, that seems it? seems right. That was, that was uh, when, uh, yes, when was Saddam's yep. forces mm-hmm. invaded Kuwait. Yep. And so we went in there. And then, of course, the secondary action was, again, after 9-11. That was the other yep. desert, whatever, desert mm-hmm. storm, desert shield. Um, no, no. Well, that no, one, no, that was different. The, so that, yeah. that was called Operation Enduring Freedom, the one in Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I meant uh, Iraq. Uh, the, the Iraq one, what was that? Well, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So okay. they're commonly mm-hmm. called OIF and OEF. Okay. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so like I said, the reason I obviously asked the question is, I would think if I'm in the military and I see this happening on TV, and there's got to be the sinking sensation in your your gut thinking, my life is going to change mm-hmm. from here on in. Yes, yeah, I knew it's like uh, I didn't know when. I thought it was going to happen like in a, in a couple of days. I, th- mm. I expected the phone to ring. I mean, a lot of people in my reserve unit, which is the uh, 452nd Combat Support Hospital. Uh, a lot of people were calling the unit, hey, when are we going? And we figured there's going to troops go over there. They're going to uh, do a whole staging. Our hospital unit will be, you know, somehow staged outside the uh, the front line of troops, whatever. So it, but that, uh, 
it didn't happen actually for several years after that when hmm. we actually got called up. And you said uh, uh, the keyword, which is hospital unit. Your mm-hmm. your job in the military is what was a, what? I am a clin- I was a clinical lab officer. Uh, so I was at the time a captain. Mm-hmm. So, but I had a long, fairly long career before that in the reserves. I was uh, enlisted for ten years, so I made it up to staff sergeant. Then, uh, after ten years of that, since I had my degree in clinical laboratory science, I became a clinical lab officer, and then I took the officer slot. Started as a second lieutenant, and then two thousand and three, when we got deployed, I was at the rank of captain. Okay. Did there? Did you ever think about? somehow getting out of the military or could you get out of the military before you were deployed? Was that an option or Uh, did you think about it even? I never thought about it. It was always, um, yeah, I never really was going to, you know, I I knew I was going to do 20 years in the military, possibly more than that. So yeah, I had no inclination at the start of any, you know, what I can hostile action against the country but that I was going to get out of the military. Did Jim? How many years were you in the military? Uh, four. Four years. Yep. Did and you knew four and done. You knew that, or? Uh, you know, I didn't know that for sure, but I was I was pretty sure. I went in basically. I went in for money for college. I mean, that was my that was my whole uh, goal there. But yeah, and then you know, as I went along, I thought, oh, you know, maybe this would be cool. And then uh, then there was a possibility that I was going to be deployed to Korea. And I say, well, let's just wrap this up. So, uh, but the so difference, Jim was active duty, right? Yeah, I was. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. So I was reserves the whole time. But then, when you are brought onto active duty, then you are, you know, when you're what's called mobilization, right? So then you're now on active duty. So mm-hmm. I remember back in 1991 when uh, again Iraq invaded Kuwait. There was a whole generation of people in the military that had never been deployed to any hotspot. And there's a bunch of people like, hey, I just did this for the college money. I yep. don't, I, right. I don't want to be here. And they, they tried to get out and they couldn't. Um, you know, was there any of uh, now with you um, when you went into the reserves? Were you always hopeful that you'd never be deployed, or was it something that just didn't bother you if you got deployed? It bothered me. It bothered my parents probably more. Mm-hmm. I mean, my father, my was a World War II veteran, and he wanted me nowhere near any combat zone. But when I got uh, mobilized for Desert Storm, he was very upset. But um, you know, I didn't really, I, I sort of didn't pay it too much mind. Mm-hmm. Like, well, this, you know, he was more upset than me. You know, yeah. that he thought I was going to go off and see some sort of combat zone, which never happened during that uh, mobilization. So, so he but- was more upset than me. But you I, said I wasn't combat zone. You were in Afghanistan, though. It's considered a combat zone. Yeah, I mean, you, when you when you're in the uh, army or the military and you are deployed to a combat zone, you get a combat patch. I mean, I'm not going to say. Yeah, uh, I was part of the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan or anything yeah, like right, that. Right. But you know, you were in what was considered a combat zone, and you there's things that are involved with that, like you get extra combat pay, mm-hmm. family separation pay, things like this. So, yeah. But, I mean, there could be stray bombs, there could be mm-hmm. snipers, there could be, you know, there could be any number of things like that. So, I mean, you were in danger, right? Yes. Well, there was lots of indirect fire stuff coming in from, uh, out, you know, we would get um, rounds uh, into our compound, into the uh, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. I did some time at a place called Mazari Sharif, so I was out there at a... Uh, 
and a base out there was the Jordanian hospital, but that was Taliban country out there. Hmm. So there was lots of, uh, you know, we would, in the middle of the night, you could see Taliban out, and other, uh, you know, cameras that could see out into the, you know, outside our perimeter. Mm-hmm. And uh, they warned us, you know, you stay on, you know, in behind what we're called HESCO barriers. Don't venture beyond that because they will fire upon us. So. Sure. They don't. They don't care that you're a medical guy. No, they, they don't just, know. Yeah, no, they, they don't know. And even if they did know, I don't think they care. I don't mm-hmm. think that would matter nope. to them. Yeah. And when you yeah. when we would drive, we would drive to uh, near Kantahar in Kabul. We would go to you know, well, Kabul was clo- fairly close to our base. We were always encountering, uh, you know, armed people. You don't know they were. They never shot at us, but. Uh, you know, you had weapons and they were loaded. So. And mm-hmm. there could be IEDs in the mm-hmm. roadway. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I never encountered that, but we were always, you know, don't get outside the vehicle and wander around. There was a lot of landmines. They were mm-hmm. put there by the, when the Russian conflict happened, you know, a decade before that, there was a lot of landmines that were there. So you always stuck to mine cleared areas. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of landmine uh, injuries come into our, medical center there our hospital so mm-hmm. and you did mention in our first podcast which you can go back and listen to yep one of our first ones actually season one episode three where we talked briefly about uh, some of the stuff and talked about um you know some of the very difficult uh circumstances you're under in terms of you know children being injured mm-hmm. and people being injured that mm-hmm. you had to help and it's it, that had to be a very difficult thing for you mm-hmm. yes yeah. yeah but you know you're we did a lot of good things over there. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the humanitarian type of emissions. That's, you know, what you're there for. You're there to serve soldiers. But there wasn't a lot of U.S. soldiers or coalition soldiers who were subject to uh, gun direct fire or gunshot or landmines. So a lot of it was humanitarian. That's really hmm. what we did. The majority of our time was spent treating those those people. We did get soldiers in there who were injured and you know our priority was to help them but was know. was the humanitarian aspect of it necessary outside the war theater what i mean is were these humanitarian crises being caused by the conflict a lot of it was uh but i'd say most of it was not most of it was uh the landmines and motor vehicle accidents and mm-hmm. other things I don't think there was a lot of civilians shooting each other or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the the majority of it was landmines. I would say the, the the horrible injuries that we saw was was that. That's that's wild to think that it was from the Russian conflict because it means that even before this war, these people dealt with this stuff all the time. Like, mm-hmm. don't go off that road because you might yep. run into a landmine. I mean, they're still everywhere. They had that's been crazy. there for decades. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah, you that's plant insane. one and you, it's, yeah. it, 20 years later, someone could yeah. detonate it. You usually don't put a flag where they are. Usually yeah. you don't do that. Mm-hmm. But you know, Yeah, you, know, you do it in a video <laughs> game. But. It'd, be, it'd be a courtesy, but yeah. <laughs> I right. think I could be pretty good over there. I, I play, I'm pretty good at Minesweeper. I think I could. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. <laughs> just that one thing, it clears half the board. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's. Why don't they just do that? Yeah, but I mean, that's that's pretty crazy to think that. You know, there's a country that's still landmines everywhere. Well, uh, you know, you talk about that. There's areas, I believe, in France that are still off limits because of landmines from World War One and World War Two. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and remember who's 
you know, I, I say this in the form of a quiz question. Who's big? Uh, who is the big person? The anti-landmine person. You know, the, the crusade. Yeah, Angelina Jolie. Yeah, that one too. But I'm thinking, wasn't Princess Diane? Wasn't that her big thing? Was it? Oh, Diana. I think so. Yeah. Diana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Diana called her Di. Oh, well, yeah, well, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, to get back. You know, that we're kind of. You know, I talked about just you in general, mm-hmm. and now. Uh, uh, you know some of the bigger overarching questions. I don't know if, like I said, if you want to comment on them or not, but we'll find out. You mentioned that you're at Bagram Air Force Base, so let's yes. start at the end. Let's start at the end of the U.S. Uh, involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, this summer, the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan. You know, it has been 20 years, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a lot of people are using the events of that for political purposes. You know, saying this is a big uh, black eye as far as the United States was concerned. A lot of you know, it looked bad when people were falling from planes, and and uh, and the Taliban immediately overran the country as soon as as soon as we pulled out. One of the talking points that people had was that uh, we should have been using Bagram Air Force Base uh, for to coordinate the pullout. What about that? Is is that a is that something you thought as well? Well, you know, I'm happy to be out of there. I mean, Bagram was a. It's hard to say. I mean, it was. It's an airstrip. That's really what what its purpose is. It's got an air tower. It's got all sorts of hangars there. So all those things could be used for any kind of strategic purposes. But you know, our hospital was there. The thing that's probably that probably is the most difficult to to take in of what has happened is the U.S. spends so much money there. I mean, universities have been built. Like we had a hospital; it was out of made out of tent, you know, a tent type hospital. That was all taken down, and an actual hospital was built. Hmm. You know, like a, wow. a like building, a building, brick and mortar building, a very state of the art type hospital. Well, that's who knows what's going to happen to all these things, right? Yeah. All these in the you know the university and all, all the, the money uh, that's been put into yeah. rebuilding that country. It's so and the military stuff left behind. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's ask a, a, the big question here. Was it a mistake? Was our involvement in Afghanistan uh, was it was it a mistake, or was it a partial mistake, or a, a big mistake? Uh, probably a partial mistake. It's difficult to change that country. You know, I mean, being over there, the people are is primitive. It, it, it doesn't work like a normal civilized country. You know, mm-hmm. there's not really a central form of government. There's all different factions of, of tribes, if you will, of people, and they're all run by their own independent government to come in there and try to make them a country like that work like the United States or any civilized country would is, is difficult. And so it's a partial mistake, but, you know, I felt like we were stepping in the right direction there, but how long would this go on? I mean, I, I saw like, was this going to go on forever? I mean, mm-hmm. when my, mm-hmm. when my granddaughter is an adult, is this going to still be troops over there, you know, until the end of time? I re- I didn't really think, you know, we have to have some kind of exit strategy. I don't, I think the mistake here was it just happened way too fast. It needed to be a, a more longer exit strategy that they well, had. 20 years. <laughs> 20 right. years. Well, I think, but I mean, I think when they ended it, 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 it happened yeah. fairly quick, like in a weekend. Right, right. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like like yeah. it was like, okay, you know, it had it taken a, several years and equipment would have been pulled out, right. you know, in a more organized fashion. It seemed fairly, you know, 
disorganized how right. quickly troops were exactly. just taken out of there. And maybe yeah. it could have been done a little bit more, say, in secret. Like like you said, don't announce the pullout. Yeah. Kind of do it gradually, <laughs> yes. right? Kind of do it yeah. gradually without people noticing. Of course, they'd notice. But like you said, you get more people out of there more effectively if you mm-hmm. do it in stages as opposed to, like you said, you know, like planning a weekend vacation. Yeah, the, the, the there's uh, U.S. Uh, civilians that were there that, you know, had difficulty getting out, you know, the military could have had a more staged uh, exit strategy than they did. Yeah. Should it have been evident to Americans, the American leadership, that the Taliban were going to take over as soon as we left? Should that have been foreseen? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they were... I mean, how about you? I mean, you were there. If you thought, if we pull out of here... This is going to stay yeah, intact, or this is not going to stay. Right. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to stay intact. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, but the so much money was spent. I mean, that's what that's the thing you you see over there. It was so much effort to build, you know, a university mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to build hospitals. I mean, these are massive structures, and yeah. you know, and lives lost, obviously. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. right, right. Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I sort of feel like. I could see where maybe the Taliban would start to increase their influence and their, their power. And stuff. I don't think anybody, and I don't even think any military analysts expected it to be in a weekend. I mean, like mm-hmm. we left in a weekend and the next weekend, well, yeah, Taliban yeah. has everything. Yes. Like, how the heck? You know, and, and then you start thinking, like you said, Chris, we were there 20 years plus, right? Mm-hmm. And so how long do we have to give their military in order to uh, make them able to uh, sort of protect themselves, you know, how long we've we've been training you for twenty years and giving you all the equipment you need. How long is it going to take before you're ready to defend yourself? And the answer might be maybe they didn't want to. And and also there there is no they. I think that's the problem when you say how long is it going to take you guys them to get well, their act together? Taliban. Yeah, but there but there <laughs> is the Taliban. As Scott said, you know, it's it's so disorganized. There's so many different tribes, so many yeah. different factions that there is no one faction that can control this place. Except and for the so, Taliban. Apparently. Except for the Taliban. <laughs> yeah. 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 How come we didn't side with them? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, buddy, my he 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 was over there, and he trained their police force, and mm-hmm. you know he just there's like a, a level of corruption that exists there uh, that's difficult to overcome. Mm, yeah, yep, and uh, and you know maybe that's maybe that was just it. They maybe all the all the guys who were in the army for Afghanistan who are not Taliban guys, maybe just pay them off or whatever, or I don't know. I mean, maybe they feel like. Maybe they didn't want to be there in the first place, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sure seemed like something was going on because <laughs> it didn't take much. Just kind of think it's like a domino, Bink, and there yep. you go, you're done. What? I wonder about uh, you know, the so-called military-industrial complex getting their fangs in different presidents, for example. I mean, this started under Bush, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big things that was going on during the Bush administration was uh, all sorts of protests in the United States and around the world, you know, protesting our involvement in these wars, maybe more specifically Iraq, but Afghanistan to a certain extent. And politicians, when they're on the campaign trail, let's start with like Obama, saying, you know, we can't be in these wars, right? And then they get elected, then they get in office, and then the military-industrial complex guys sit in the room with them and say, okay, now on the campaign trail you said this, 
but you don't know what we know. You know, we the generals, we the people involved with the military, we really know what's going on. So your promises, your your ideas about, you know, ending this or, or, or dialing this back, you got to listen to us on this. And uh, you know, that happened with Obama and even Trump on the campaign trail said, yeah, we got to stop these wars. And both of them, you know, started to sing in different tunes once they got in there and started saying, we need more, we need more troops, we need more of this, more of that. And, you know, is the problem, you know, the military structure that uh, they're able to overly influence politicians to get what they want, which might be them to deploy their weapons? Yeah, it's, <laughs> geez, that's a loaded one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, you know, being, being over the, seeing, let me think about how I want to answer this one. Um, I mean, you look, you know, when, when Biden took over, you know, he quickly acted to end it. Right. You know, not a lot of, but, you know, I don't know. I think it's taught when you get into a room with these uh, generals and stuff, you know, they, they got to keep their machine going. They got to keep, you know funding into the military and you know when you start to pull all that away i don't know what are, yeah. what are they left with and so it does yeah. sort, of, sort of seem like there might be a little bit of a conflict of interest right i mean that you know you're asking for a guy a guy who's who's you know like, like a washing machine machine salesman do i need a washing machine yeah yeah, yeah you gotta have a washing machine i mean <laughs> you can probably need three of them actually you know on yeah. each floor or whatever like of course you know of course these military guys are gonna say and and the tricky part about it is they might be absolutely right in terms of strategy. That might be the right strategy to use. Or maybe, you know, it's like, how can you, I don't want to say how can you trust them because I, I don't, but you, you see what I'm getting at, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think they're all trustworthy stand-up people, but at the same time, they do have, you know, they have to have their interests and their people's interests in mind mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent. And, and how much does that, how much can they filter that out of their own uh, sort of, um, judgment about the situation you know they might they might be saying these things really believing that yes they actually need these and subconsciously they're you know it's because they've always been geared towards a big military or whatever you know yeah it's um, it's the old idea that if if what you've got is a hammer everything looks like a nail exactly right right and mm -hmm. they've got the military they're they're in the military so they see the military as the ends to all the conflicts that they sure. that they see Obama, for example, I mean, he really pushed, you know, getting out of this war initially. And I thought a big turning point was when Osama bin Laden was killed. I thought mm -hmm. that was, there's an opportunity to scale back and get out of this place. Sure. But, you know, I, I got to believe that either he had to change their heart or I think they got to him. You know, they got to him, meaning, you know, the advisors, uh, the people that, that, that want to nation build, the people that want to... Uh, you know, extend American influence around the world, you know, because again, people, you know, in the, Amer in the United States, we think, hey, we got the best system going on here and we want to spread it to the rest of the world, even if they don't want it. And uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, it might just be that they, we, they know things that, that we don't know, obviously, but they might have known, like, if we pull out of there, the Taliban's coming back next weekend. They might have known this, you of, know. And, and, uh, you know, and that's <laughs> of course. But that whole that whole line of reasoning, what you just said, is hey, we know things you don't know. Yeah. That's what keeps us in these wars. True. Yeah, you know, because they say yeah. they come up to Obama, they yeah. come up to Trump, and they say, okay, 
this is what you want, but you don't know what I know. You True. Know? Yeah. And you know what? They were wrong. It turned out they were wrong. I mean, I mean, I'll I'll take a stance. I'll ask. I'll answer the question that uh, that I asked uh, Scott initially. And obviously, you guys were both in the military, and you maybe have allegiances to it or not. But I think that that th- these things have been a mistake. I've always been dubious of the fact that there were sleeper cells everywhere. I've been dubious of the fact that they're always out to get us. You know, these terrorists. Um, I think nine eleven was perpetrated by a small group of people highly motivated and i didn't think they were all over the planet looking to get us Mm. and uh, i think that um that we freaked out as a country uh, by 9 11 and you know whether it be with our wars or with our laws like the patriot act and things like that we overreacted and uh it's largely been a screw up in my eyes Mm -hmm. when you look at the taliban are they really the enemy you know you think you know they let Al Qaeda exist in their land, and mm-hmm. they were right. hell bent on bringing down America. Yep. Is the Taliban? Is that really their priority? Right. It's hard to tell. You know, mm-hmm. they may just want to have their land free of American influence and yeah. just live their lives, and have their sort of religious state as they prefer to have it, and their citizens live a certain way, and they just don't want anyone in their way. Right. And they don't want America in there trying to build things and Americanize their world. And if you leave them alone, maybe they just sort of don't do anything. They're not a threat anymore. But yeah, if yeah. if if the Afghanistan people don't want the Taliban, it's up to them to get rid of them. You know, it's not for us to you know to take over their country and say you know and. You know, the we didn't really listen to the the bombers of nine eleven. They said, you know, our motivation was we got the Americans on our lands and we don't like it. And people kept saying, Oh, you know, they hate our freedom, they hate our this, they hate our that. No, they came on and said, Here's what we don't like and we didn't listen to them, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, and there's a couple of things going on here too. I mean, number one was, you know, they did, like you said, they did house Al Qaeda and that's where they had I mean, they had significant uh build up of these terrorist groups, right, in, mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. So there was that. The, also, the the uh, the other problem with this group of people is the humanitarian aspect of it, the way they treat the women, right. the way they treat, you know, that that, that whole culture um, is not accepted by Western society. And, of course, the United States is seen as the police for Western society values, and so it sort of becomes suddenly our our responsibility to go in and say, "Hey, you you know, you have to let women go to school. You have to let, you know, them do these things. You can't be beating people down. You can't be, you know, martial law without trial. All that stuff. You know, I mean, or, or whatever. Anyway. Yeah, and I'd be uh, more you know. for that argument if it weren't that there is. Ten other Many places, other ten right. other places in the world right. that have got the same thing going Africa on. Africa is yeah. all over in Africa, right? I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. So our motivations being pure are a little bit suspect. Correct. In that regard. I, I agree. I agree. Well, the other aspect of that is that you know Afghanistan is in the Middle East with the oil. Right. That's a whole other conversation. Um, I think, but I do think that in general, it was more. It was. It was certainly not even in general. This is not even like a radical statement. It was much more. Uh, widely accepted, I guess you could say, that we attack Afghanistan after 9-11 than it right. was for us to go in Iraq several years later. Yeah. You know, um, because Iraq, it was like, well, wait, 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 what happened? Now, all of a sudden, we're just taking this opportunity. And then there was a weapons of mass destruction thing, and that's a whole other story. But that, But that's another area that we 
you know, didn't touch on, you know, but yeah, yeah, we, you know, it's sort of uh, round two of this. That's where we were, we were supposed to go to Iraq. That's what's my original mission was to go there. It was all this stuff about, you know, um, oh, geez, was the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein. Yeah, yeah. Uh, When Saddam Mm -hmm. Hussein, uh, he was a threat and uh, Bush believed he was a threat. We were supposed to go over there. That was a quick military process there and we were our mission was suddenly canceled and then we ended up going to afghanistan yeah mm-hmm. you know uh, to kind of wrap up this this yeah. uh, portion of the podcast you know there's one thing that uh people always say they'll say when the back out when the when we pulled out of afghanistan um they're saying oh we can't have all this effort in vain and all the lives lost you know in vain and there's this thought that um that we got to keep going to win a war, otherwise all our efforts in vain, right? And that's an easy thing to say, you know, to keep the war going because we got to win, right? Uh, but I think the bigger thing is lives are lost in vain if we don't learn a lesson, you know. And so that's the bigger thing for me with this whole: was it in vain or not in vain? If we learned our lesson and we learned some lessons, I should say, then it wasn't in vain. But if people are just going to say, um, like they did in Vietnam, for example, they'd say. Oh, you know, all they had to do is let us win the war and bomb more. I don't think they got the message. You know, I don't think they got the message. This whole idea that we could have won Vietnam had we just bombed more. I think there's a lot of people that think we could have turned Afghanistan around more if we bombed more. And if they think that, I don't think they're learning the right lesson. I mean, could there have been enough bombs and enough troops on the ground to, quote, unquote, win Afghanistan? Do you think it's possible? I don't think so in the way that we're saying win. Right. Mm -hmm. I think we just, you know, do do, do our, the military presence there was to prevent Al-Qaeda type training camps. And there was enough troops to prevent that. But I don't, you know, does this go on indefinitely? Right. And that's where you think it's, it can't go on indefinitely. The money spent to keep a military presence there over decades and decades and it was 20 years of being there you know you would never win the war Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. i thought you know an exit that was more controlled more over time would have probably been more of a viewed positive by the public Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, but you know, you look at World War Two, right? Mm-hmm. We stayed in Germany. We're still in Germany. Yes, yep. yeah. You know, so that's I mean, that's eighty years now. And we're in Korea. We're in Korea, yeah. and we're in you know um, a lot of places. I mean, you know, but uh, Germany is always the one that sticks out in my mind. Japan, we're in Japan still. I mean, but yeah, you know, I, I think I think the idea that we won those wars was that places like Germany, Japan, and South Korea are currently allies, right? And that's. That's kind of the win. You right, know? but how long did you know, how long does it take to, you know, I mean, we only stayed 20 years. You can say, well, what if we stayed 80 years in right. Afghanistan? Maybe they'd be an ally. Or, right. <laughs> I mean, I think the bigger thing is that they have organized governments that are, are reasonable and rational, and, and you, can, you can put together an entity that can hold its own. You know, whereas, like you were saying, Scott, I mean, we, we uh, I use Iraq, and, uh, Iraq as an example because I know the Shiites and the Sunnis we, we went in there thinking like, well, we take out Saddam Hussein and now the Shiites and the Sunnis are going to get along, right? Because 
because here we, we took out that guy. Now we'll put in somebody that we that's going to like us. They're never going to like us. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter. So it's the same thing with these, you know, all these all these tribal groups. They're not going to just magically be friendly mm-hmm. and, and, and rational with each other. They're still going to hate each other. They're still going to feel like that. I want that land. That's my land or whatever gripes they got against each other. It's always going to be there. So how do you how do you sort of take those groups and 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 co- somehow come to some kind of rational agreement of like we need to live together after they've been fighting for thousands of years? Yeah. You know, it's, it's still, well, could, so, could could Afghanistan be like the fifty first state of the United States, like yeah. what Alaska is? Right. Not part of the continental United States, mm-hmm. Hawaii and Alaska. You could this could be the fifty first state, and you sure. are now. Americans, but in a loose sense, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that yeah. would be the best case scenario as far as like, okay, now this country now belongs to the United States and United States resources are put to funding it and the sure. government, but I don't think it would be followed by many of the citizens no. there. No. So, nope. It's yeah. kind of like Russia taking Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Afghanistan is not a country. It's a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Scott, when I thought about this topic, I thought, I don't you know, want to talk about you know, war, about the military. But it turned out to be a good conversation, I think. So, All right. Well, thanks, uh, Scott. And we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll come back uh, for the second half. All right. All right. Okay. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast when we conclude our interview with our good friend, Scott Saveco. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.